Hey, it's Ross from Reversing Climate Change. I wanted to let you know that we have a new podcast called Carbon Removal Newsroom. It's short form, it's timely, and it's all about carbon removal. Whenever we see a good news story about carbon removal, or that should be about carbon removal, we're going to record a short episode about it with a rotating cast of guests. So please subscribe to Carbon Removal Newsroom, check it out in your podcast app of choice, and thank you so much for your support. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I am Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe. Again, no producer. Paul, where are you? We need you. I'm doing this alone. I need your help. <laughs> please, please come back. It's nice to have uh, someone to watch the levels while you're doing it so you're not having to chat at the same time, but I'm growing into this role. I think I'm doing okay. I think you are, Ross. Ross is on the levels. Uh, Ross and I were feeling a little nostalgic today because we're actually recording this podcast in the library at University of Washington. And of the many hats that Ross wears at Nori, one of them is librarian. That just means that when I moved up to Seattle, I brought my books and the ones that even tenuously fit what Nori is about, I just stuffed into our (laughs) library cabinets. Yeah, but you also loaned them out and give me foul looks if I return them a little bit sullied. That's true. Alden has a has a book about carbon markets, and I yes. keep keep nagging her. Right. So you do a good job at that. That's it for the bicker banter. I'd like to. <laughs> yeah, moving on now. <laughs> I would like to introduce our guest. It's really exciting today um, to have an expert in the field, someone who knows what she's talking about, who can perhaps teach us a little bit around carbon accounting because that's what we're trying to build a business around, as it just so turns out, and. We get particularly excited when thinking about opportunities that have historically emitted carbon that can potentially play a role in storing that same carbon. And so this episode, we'll get into a lot of the ideas around the built environment, life cycle assessments, and various things that really can move the needle in addressing the total amount of carbon going into the atmosphere. So without any further ado, sitting to my left is Professor Kate Simonen. She is the Department of Architecture at the University of Washington, and she also has been a founder, starter of the Carbon Leadership Forum, and I'm sure we'll learn more what that is all about. But Kate, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you on here. We like to start the show with understanding the origins of how people got to where they are today, which is sitting on the Reversing Climate Change podcast. So how did it all get started? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. So I am trained as an architect and structural engineer, and I was practicing as such in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I got together with a team looking to try and build low-carbon buildings, so zero-carbon buildings. And in that process, we started by thinking that that was uh, zero operating emissions, so buildings that were super energy efficient with solar panels. Uh, And then we started to look at how we were going to make those buildings and started to get questions about the supply chain. So how could you make a sustainable building? What materials were you using? Were you using concrete or steel or wood? And where does it come from? And that led me to try and understand what is the impact of manufacturing the materials that we use to build buildings and transporting them around the world. And that led me to life cycle assessment, which is the accounting method to understand those impacts. Um, I joined the University of Washington about nine years ago as a faculty member and started my research to try and understand and communicate that data 
more clearly. And what I found is there was a lot of interesting work to both understand the data and also generate and make decisions from that data. Yeah, we we talked about this on a recent episode uh, with Jimmy Gia, a clean tech entrepreneur up here in Seattle, about drawing the system boundaries of life cycle analyses. Am I jumping the gun? Or am I okay to do this? You're not. Okay. Is it analyses or ass- assessment? Just to call you out there. Oh, life cycle assessments. Yes. Yeah, that's an LCA. Yes. Um, how, how do you draw the system boundaries? We we ended up talking about this essay called iPencil, which we sent your way. And there's this problem of it seems really simple to talk about how to build a pencil. There's a factory and there's a tree that goes into it. But there's also the machines that cut down those trees. And then what about the agriculture that went to feed the people who cut down the tree? And then the machines that made the food. It's like every active consumption is in some way participating in the entire global economy. But if you treat an LCA like this, are you even able to functionally talk about it? Does it become impossible? How do you draw these system boundaries in a way that is actually useful? Uh, That's a great question because how the system boundary is defined will impact the results. So what do you include in your analysis and what do you exclude? And life cycle assessment is an evolving method. So different analyses can have different system boundaries and then therefore different results. So the pencil article is great, and I would encourage people to read it if they're looking for an interesting thought expander. You know, one of the things like growing the coffee to feed the workers versus making the manufacturing equipment. So there are standardized methods that exist. So commonly, for example, the people are assumed to exist no matter what. So the assumption is, is that even if you weren't cutting down trees, you would probably still have a cup of coffee. And so that the cup of coffee and the people themselves tend to be outside the system boundary. Oh, so it's like additionality, kind of. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the term that you end up using or is there some other term for that, it? That, that guy would have drunk a coffee and done some other job that had nothing to do with the pencil. It would have happened anyway. would have happened anyway. You can't attribute it to the building. Right. But it can get There are more challenging questions like, should you include the impact of making the cement kiln and divide it out over the many different years that the cement is made? So that one arguably should, because it's the impact of making cement, you have to make a cement kiln. But sometimes when one is conducting an LCA, there are different reasons why you might conduct an LCA. So if the goal is to understand the global impact of cement production one would need to include the impact of making the cement kilns. But if the goal of doing the LCA was to compare two different cement manufacturing processes who have almost the same facility types, or perhaps it's difficult to get that data, one might not include that. So the system boundary for wood products is challenging in terms of how far back into the forest do you include. You know, Did the forest exist? Are the forest the same as that cup of coffee? Or are the forests related to the forest products? And how do, how do you include that? We've thought a little bit about using forest products as uh, instances of carbon removal if you're able to sustainably harvest wood and build wooden buildings out of it that could uh, store carbon, assuming that that forest is replacing carbon that you took out of the forest. But it does seem to get a little tricky in there. I don't think we've been able to fully wrap our heads around probably system boundary issues. You think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think we can be a little bit hand-wavy at this moment in time because we don't have a live methodology for such a thing. But it brings to mind something that I want to attribute to Klaus Lackner, who I worked for for a number of years, who 
talked about mobilizing carbon to help and perhaps simplify some of the carbon accounting in, in LCAs. So he essentially says if you mobilize a ton of carbon, you need to put another ton of carbon away because CO2 accumulates in the atmosphere. And mobilizing carbon can come from cutting down forests. It can come from burning fossil fuels, uh, soil erosion, a whole bunch of natural processes. But the point is, it's that balancing act. And LCAs become a useful tool, it seems, to help the carbon accounting in these various stages to say, when you mobilize the carbon, can you reduce that at some form of the process? Once you've now mobilized the carbon and got that building, are you able to track emissions that say, I have this rosy-eyed view of there's a world that actually wants to pay to put carbon away. I don't think we're there yet. We're trying to get there. But anyway, so that helps you kind of track these things that want to reduce the carbon. And then you obviously have all of these different system boundaries. So I guess I'm kind of just garbling some words to potentially compose a question around the stages that things move through to build things. And I think let's talk about buildings because you're the architect and, and are able to talk about that. We ultimately want to get to that balance act, right? Mm -hmm. And so can you talk us through a little bit of the stages and how LCAs become applicable um, in this context? So I'm going to start just with a building sure. as opposed to buildings. Or, or, or even a room if you want. <laughs> a build, I'll just go with a building, which is easier to start with. So there are the impacts of a building go all the way back, start with material extraction, which is often called the cradle. So extracting materials from earth and the emissions related to extracting those materials and then manufacturing them. So there's electricity that's used and there's often chemical reactions that take place in the, in the formation of um, new materials. And then there's transportation and construction. So that phase is often called the embodied impacts or the impacts embodied in the materials of a building. And then there's the stages of using a building. That includes operating the building, so using electricity and water and uh, heat. But they're also during the use phase, there's also the impacts of repairing materials and maintaining those materials. And then there would be the end of life stage. So did you demolish the building? What do you do with the materials at end of life? What happens to them? Do they rot or do you reuse them? And then there is things that happen outside of the system boundary, like are you able to avoid manufacturing more steel because you recycle a lot of steel, or how much carbon was sequestered in the growth of wood materials. So there are formalized life cycle stages that are used to characterize where those impacts are. Interestingly, if you change from a building to buildings, which gets to cities and infrastructure, there is a constant flow of things that are built and demolished and um, there's the electrical grid. And so I'm, I'm pointing out that it starts to get more complicated. However, it's not necessarily essential to define the full complex system to take action to improve the system. So our work at the Carbon Leadership Forum is emphasizing increasing awareness of architects, owners, and builders that the choices they make in materials matter and identifying strategies both from a computational perspective, the, calculating the carbon, but also making good choices. So simply speaking, you're better off reusing a building than tearing it down and building a new one. That sounds sort of obvious. Yeah, what if it's a really clean building? 
or like a really, uh, really progressive, excellent, good steward of its resources building. You mean tear down a bad building and build a super clean building? You're saying in some cases it would be much better to just keep the old building? Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. If we think about a lot of the impacts are in foundation systems and the primary structure of the system. So if you can keep the existing structure and upgrade the insulation or the mechanical systems, you can improve the operations. That's what retrofitting is? Yes. Okay. So retrofitting good. And when you're building, use the materials really efficiently. So don't be completely driven by form. So there's some choices that you can make about how you build your building that uses less material. Uh, and then pick lower lower carbon or carbon sequestering materials. I find that, I mean, I first of all, love the concept of let's do things that don't emit more carbon. And if that's reusing a building or repurposing it, great, fully on board. As a New Yorker, we used to live in a city where there are some rather tall skyscrapers going up. And I think architects, and maybe you'll res this will resonate with you. Some architects, I'm sure you can think of at least one, have quite large egos. They want to build the tallest building. And they're doing it actually because that's what people want. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of dirty secret is that when you build really tall buildings, that's going to release a lot of carbon and the energy that the building consumes and the various things that go into that input. So there's this pressure, I think, where you say form matters, but think about the carbon. I'm just curious your perspective on when form is really driven by egos and I want to live on the 120th floor and these, you know, Russian oligarchs. I mean, in the next decade in New York City, we're going to see a number of really tall buildings, which from a life cycle, I think look pretty poor. And so I'm curious to understand some of your insight into the, the forces that are both retrofitting old buildings and what you're up against in some of the new gaudy buildings that aren't all that good. Oh, you're trying to get political on me now. You a want little me to, bit. Like, yeah. I want to. I, I want to get. Question yeah. For yeah you. Spicy, spicy, dramatic question. <laughs> well, I'm going to pull a good academic and just be kind of neutral in my response <laughs> because it all depends. So, surely it's not the best use of our resources for individual people to have multiple large homes that sit unused. So, if you're going to talk about what would be our best action, it would not be build extra homes for super wealthy people while the rest of other people are not in homes. There are studies that compare relative height and um, the carbon impacts of making them and then the carbon impacts of operating them. And people come to position statements of the ideal density of neighborhoods related to reducing transportation because it's also not so great to spread everybody out really large distances. So there's a, there's a trade-off there. I think probably the more pressing question is the developing world and the amount of construction that's going to be happening in China, India, and Asia broadly over the next 30 years. And that construction is important from an equity perspective, uh, yet the consumption of material resources is significant. I'm trying to remember my direct quote. So it's something like we're going to be building the equivalent of a Manhattan every 35 days. Yep. I was going to say it if you didn't, because Andrew Himes dropped that same nugget on his episode of the podcast. So we might not have the exact date. It might be 32 and it might be 37, but... <laughs> You'll have to take it up with Andrew. You guys can duke yeah. that one out. <laughs> For the next 30 years. Or 30 so, years. Right? Yeah. And, and those buildings need to be material efficient, but they are also a great opportunity to be carbon sinks. If we can figure out how to grow aggregate cost effectively from smokestacks, then we could be sticking carbon into the concrete foundations. Like the aggregate that goes into the making of concrete. Oh, yeah. Aggregate's just rock. Sorry. 
That's a technical term for rock or sand. I'm trying to play extra, extra dumb here today. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. no, no, that's a good, good one. So we're actually short of good rocks and sand. So it might seem crazy, but at, at you know, Hawaii is now importing sand. And the punchline is. Oh, and the punchline <laughs> is if we can stick carbon in sand. Oh, <laughs> just sounded like a great setup for a joke. Oh, I'm, no, Hawaii. I'm not actually funny. Oh, you're, you're just, I'm you're not serious. funny. I don't actually have jokes. It's a... <laughs> Well, you could have told us that beforehand. Okay. Kate, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> no. Okay. So Hawaii is importing sand because they can't make concrete with the amount of sand that they have there. Right. They need sand and gravel of a certain quality that you don't want to dredge all the beaches of Hawaii to use. Yeah. Where do, where do you get it? Where is the sand coming from? Well, I know where it's coming from here. There are aggregate mines in Washington state, and there are also aggregate that comes from British Columbia. And that's like super high quality Canadian rock, mm. <laughs> super strong. How does it start storing carbon? Do they treat it in some new way? Or Oh, standard rock is not actively storing carbon, mm -hmm. but there are emerging technologies that, um, okay, now I'm outside my expertise. They do something. Uh, so they can capture the carbon that comes out of the smokestack, so concentrated carbon, and grow little bits of sand or direct air capture mechanisms as a potential. So imagine what looks like a what I've seen look like a giant air conditioner of some sort that was spitting stuff out. You probably know more about this than I do. Yeah, I think that's that's Christoph's background. He does a lot about that. That's coming at some point here. And so you're saying that buildings will be able to concrete, I'm not sure how much uh, responsibility that industry has for climate change, but I think it's a double-digit percentage of man-made uh, greenhouse gases, yes? Uh, yes, depends on which system boundary you draw, oh. but really close, 10% from cement and concrete production. And cement and concrete are really useful materials, so it's a interesting trade-off, high impact and high utility. Sure, we wouldn't want to give up concrete, but over time, you're saying that buildings will be able to, I don't know if they'll be able to uh, offset the entire amount of the emissions from their concrete or just make it go down a lot? Or could it even become truly carbon negative? That's our goal. So the, as a group, we used to be modest in our ambitions and say we just want to reduce embodied carbon. But now we want the built environment to be a carbon sink. And it seems plausible, just like going to the moon seemed plausible, like hard <laughs> and needs a lot of work, but plausible. Yeah, well, you're on the Reversing Climate Change podcast, so we're liable to run our mouths about big goals as much as anyone. So I hope that works. We're very excited about uh, aggregates and concrete generally. Yeah, we're kind of counting on you, so yeah. keep keep it up. <laughs> I want to go back to, you mentioned the Carbon Leadership Forum and talking about actual practical uses for LCAs. So can you just give some example? I mean, I love the goal, the ambition long-term. We're totally aligned and on the same team. We want buildings to be net carbon sinks, but they're not there yet. Um, but LCAs still have usefulness. And so can you, for our listeners, kind of explain why someone might want to use an LCA today and how, how they're being used? Okay. In the building industry, there's really two scales of LCAs that are taking place. One is at a product. So a product-specific LCA is conducted and can report the results in an environmental product declaration and EPD. EPDs are sort of like nutrition labels in that, that you can read an EPD and have a sense of the carbon emissions for a specific product. The U.S. Green Building Council and other green building programs gives credits. So you can get credits if you use products with EPDs. 
And that that's really about disclosure. So this is new as a practice that a manufacturer would disclose the carbon and other environmental impacts of their manufacturing. So it's not across the industry. So at the first stage, we're really needing to get towards transparency. And then then there's the look towards improvement. And so then you, one could conduct what's called a whole building LCA. But frankly, it's really a part of a whole building LCA usually. So typically people are analyzing the big hitters of the structural system, the beams and the columns, and the exterior walls, the windows and insulation and things like that. It's the steel. Is that the big... Uh... The big harmful one. Oh, no? now you're trying another political comment. Get, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to put you somewhere. We're going to dig yourself out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what, what's what's well, bad about building buildings? What's like the big? What's bad one? about building buildings is we use a lot of material, yeah. and materials tend to have a high impact, especially the um, materials that require a fair amount of energy to process. That's like that's concrete. That's steel. That's glass. That's insulation. Plastic. That's aluminum. Plastics. I'm still not entirely clear what insulation is, but I've been made quite itchy in my grandma's attic once. Um, oh, you were that kid. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's, it's like cotton candy. This is so cool. And, yeah, no, that's not smart. <laughs> no, it was it was not, no. Well, I'm very glad that you did not die from that experience so that we could record this podcast. I also am glad because I want to play this game that we are going to try out for the very first time. It's called Good LCA, Bad LCA. So I'll say good LCA, and then Kate will finish my sentence. Yeah, and what I really appreciate is that you didn't tell me this ahead of time. So it's totally, <laughs> totally improvised, yep. no prep. Okay. Here, here we go. A good LCA is? One that defines the system boundary. A bad LCA is? One that doesn't tell you anything about their analysis method, just the result. A good LCA is? One that uses consistent data. A bad LCA is? One that declares it's better than everybody else without being third-party reviewed. Okay, keep the politics out of this, Kate. You gotta <laughs> tone it down. Tone it down? Okay. Uh, uh, You've been warned more than once. Okay. <laughs> A bad LCA is one that declare why you want to do it. The goal so I want to do an LCA because I want to know what's the better solution. But then you analyze something totally different. Like um, I just reviewed one that I thought was bad. Mm. So um, somebody was comparing the transportation distances for using different cement alternates in concrete. And they highlighted the differences in ecotoxicity of transportation and ignored the differences in carbon impact of the concrete mix. So they picked what in the end is low significant impact differences and not prioritizing high significant impacts. Yeah, that's a good I'm one. I'm not opposed to ecotoxicity. It's just that the ecotoxicity impacts of transporting fly ash is not the biggest problem on the planet. What is ecotoxicity and what, what exactly is that? It's a measure of the toxic um, emissions within the environment. I don't like Just, that question because yeah, I'm not I, I, up on that. That's basically, it's an environmental impact category that's not commonly used because there is not as broad of a global consensus on the relevance of the reporting to the actual um, change in environmental health. Okay. I understand. So people pretty much agree uh, with LCAs that carbon dioxide and, and greenhouse gases, we need to be watching for those. But then there are other types of chemicals that there's more disagreement about. Or, or, or their importance of. So ozone depletion, oh. mm -hmm. super important. 
However, there's been policy to reduce the ozone-depleting chemical emissions, and so therefore making choices based on how much ozone-depleting emissions are taking place are not very relevant because they're all super small right now. Mm. Okay, understood. This is a hard game, Christoph. Yeah, should we end it, or do you have one more round in you? Let's let's, let's try it. This is our final okay. round of okay. the game. A okay. good LCA. Follows ISO standards and reports goal and scope and information. I think I'm repeating myself. Mm-hmm. But because LCAs can be different based on what you include and how you analyze it, it can't be a good LCA unless you tell people how you did it. Yeah, I think if there's one take-home point, you, the scientist, or really anyone who's making any kind of declaration and any kind of estimation, need to put your assumptions up front so that someone else can come along and replicate that same thing. That's like the basic tenet of science. It is. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So do that if you're doing LCAs. That sounds good. I want to get into the various uh, scopes and various other things that were referenced. Or do you do you really want me to do a no, bad LCA? I, th- I think we're good. I think she's. I think she's got it. Yeah, especially since I keep repeating myself. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> well, it sounds like if you are repeating yourself. Also, if you're listening to this podcast, it's not as easy as it sounds to be be witty and, and on it. <laughs> Christoph and I constantly are putting our foot in the mouth, and we listen back to them later and say, "Oops." So yeah, what uh, could you impact the the last comment a bit um, about the the scope and? Well, for example, one could compare two different buildings, and. If you just said this building is the lowest impact building and you didn't say what was included, sometimes studies, for example, ignore the entire foundation system because they don't have data on it. So if you don't have the foundation system, there's limits to what kind of conclusions you could draw. Mm. So it looks cleaner than it might otherwise be. Because you just don't include everything. So this seems like a real challenge that's facing the construction industry and Part of your work has been to develop tools to help them face these challenges around standardization and creating estimations that take a whole look at the building, which is with the EC3, which is the Embodied Carbon Construction Construction Calculator. The EC3 Calculator. Do you call do you call it a calculator? Yeah, is that kind of call- like ISO standards, where ISO is International Standards Organization, but you just say standards again because it's one of those things. No, we call it the EC3 tool so okay. that we don't quite sound so silly. Got it, got it. Okay, and we love the EC3 tool that obviously has been a broad stakeholder development where you have people and entities which are working in the construction industry. You have architects who can come together. I love that it seems to state its assumptions up front, so you actually actually know how those calculations are made. But can you talk a little bit about how the EC3 tool addresses some of these challenges in not full lifecycle accounting? Yeah. So first off, the EC3 tool uses LCA data. So it uses those environmental product declarations that report materials and is designed to help design construction and owner teams differentiate between materials up the supply chain. It is not a tool at the present state that could conduct a whole building lifecycle assessment. So it's being really explicit that it's around product procurement. 
So I know I want to buy steel or I want to buy reinforcing steel. What are my choices and how could I make those choices? So we're in the phase one of that project. So we've got some structural engineers piloting it, and we're just about to start with some general contractors piloting it. The main objective of this project is to try to make the complexity that we're talking about simpler for design and construction teams to act upon. So we're working with C-Change Labs, who's doing the technological development, all of the work of both user interface and data management. That's super exciting because that's not my area of expertise. And our job at the University of Washington is both to facilitate um, the dialogue across different industry groups and then help establish what that transparent data analysis is. Yeah, I imagine if you were in the construction industry, and even if it was a big priority of yours to build buildings in the most ecological fashion possible, the, the amount of information that's necessary once the scope is broad enough is, is really quite challenging. I think even if you had the right intentions, your job might be stymied just by a lack of uh, centralized information and just the world economy generally. Yeah, I mean, and in some ways, the first step of what we're doing is quite simple in that we're collecting what data exists enabling it to be sorted and evaluating the data to assess whether or not it's comparable as an intermediate step. So, I mean, that that really is right now, if I'm an architect, an engineer, an owner, I wouldn't even know what are the possible ranges. So, you know, what is the low carbon concrete that one can get in Seattle? For architects, I want to go back to Christoph's comment about the desire to build bigger and bigger buildings and I don't know too many architects, so I'm just, (laughs) if if your ego is bruised by us saying your ego is big, very sorry, you can write to us. We'll issue a formal apology to the International Society of Architects or whatever professional standards body. The AIA. (laughs) Yeah. Is there a tendency or a race? I would imagine if I was an architect these days, I would be trying to build the uh, cleanest, most environmental building possible. I'm sure, you know, just the size of the building is no longer the main metric that people are rushing for. They also want it to be a leader in uh, being environmentally sound. Is that a trend that's happening? So I have two different responses that I want to give to you. So first, I'll talk about the trend within the architecture and engineering professions. So there is a noticeable trend of understanding the interconnected complexities of the environmental impact of building from operating and building them. The Pacific Northwest is sort of known as a hub of embodied carbon, but I would extend that all the way to the West. So the West Coast, there is a lot of understanding and interest around that. I'm going to go back a little bit to the ego because it is not just the ego of the architect. And in fact, the architect in many cases, in almost all cases, is hired by somebody else. And so the choice of an egotistical architect is usually linked to the choice of an egotistical client. The clients are the ones that make the primary direction and decision making. Sure, like a giant real estate magnet naming no names. I don't know anyone off the top no, of my head. No, no, no. But, you know, and companies have desires to make buildings that are uh, notable and stunning that might not be just about ego per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... One of the interesting issues is to figure out what are the no-cost options, the best practices that one can implement uh, within any type of building, from a low-income housing to a high-rise tower, so that, you know, there are some fundamental principles about getting to zero operating energy. All of our buildings should be there by 2030, all of our new buildings, and we need to figure out pathways so all of our buildings can get to zero carbon by 2050. 
if I wanted to show off to my neighbors and I had enough money to buy a house and got enough money to build a house, I think if I wanted to show off, the best way to do it would be make one of these houses that is is living. It has a green roof on it. It's maximized to take advantage of the sun. Passive house. Passive house. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that is that the best way to show off if you're rich and you want to show that you care? So if I'm talking to the rich people showing they want to care that are in your audience, is that sort of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. yeah give, sure. give us some advice. Yeah, yes. me, in the, me in the future when I want to do this. Well, I, you know. Yes, you should be making plans to do that. So you probably in the future will be doing that. So you you or any person who owns large amounts of real estate, it might be difficult to radically change what you're doing today, but you should be having a strategy and plan of how that's going to be implemented over time. But keep in mind, listeners, that you need to make sure that you could you just stay in the house that you're in now? It might be worse to build that passive house. Am I learning? It might actually be. It, so, might, it might actually so, be so, better. So yeah. it's, it's you know, if you're going to tear down the house at one location, you're probably better off retrofitting it and adding solar panels. At some point, though, is there enough? And uh, maybe uh, appreciating your 1995 kitchen <laughs> or putting carbon storing counters in, which don't exist quite yet. No, they're like marble and granite. No one has figured out some other material for that yet. I give something more important to say than countertops, probably. No, I, I like the guests who sort of prime the questions they want to be asked. And I think you're, <laughs> you're going there a little bit, Kate, uh, when you say carbon sequestering materials in buildings or the built environment. So talk to us a little bit about that. What are some of the challenges and opportunities for storing carbon in the built environment? And maybe just we could start with the countertop, but I'm sure there's more. Yes. Okay. So the opportunity is huge. There's a large mass of materials that are used in buildings. So if you think of carbon just as a chemical that has mass that we need to stick in things, if we can figure out how to make useful materials from that carbon, there's a lot of opportunity. You know, not just the structural system, but the table that we've got here, furniture, the furnishings all along. So there are manufacturers that are setting targets to having carbon neutral products. Interface Carpet is one that they've got a plans of figuring out how they can sequester materials, reuse materials, reduce the carbon intensity of their energy sources. So there are conventional materials like carpet, and then there are new materials that might be a new use of carbon fiber, right? That once we figured out how to do that in a cost-effective way, we might be having carbon fiber tables. With buildings that are bigger than single-family homes, uh, I've seen there's some pretty big buildings in Seattle that use wood as their structure. Yes, mm-hmm. they're beautiful. Some of them, the the beams are exposed and they're they're really lovely. More so than if it was just an exposed steel beam. If you're in some cool warehousey kind of space, like many of the co-working spaces that I've been in has have those kind of things. Why is that coming back? Why is wood as a structural support now either allowed? Was it disallowed? Did steel just steal the show for a while and now wood is back? What's happening? That could be a whole podcast in itself. Is it a juicy topic? Just a juicy topic. We should. Just a cross-laminated timber podcast, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it has to do with uh, new manufacturing techniques, making large pieces of wood out of smaller pieces. Some of that is a renewed interest in the material, so an enthusi- people who feel that it's beautiful and want to build with it. There have been recent changes to the building code, which allow people to build taller buildings out of wood. There was a lot of debate about that. Wood can catch fire easier than steel and concrete, although steel and concrete also have issues with fire. So you have to fireproof steel and, and concrete also. 
So it is, um, in some ways, it's a trend that construction crews have expertise in different methods. So if you look at some of the old buildings in Seattle, they're all built out of heavy timber, big, large pieces of wood, partly because that was what was available. We had big trees and lots of people who knew how to build out of wood. And at that point in time, you had to ship the steel and the concrete in from Chicago or the East Coast. So at that time, we had a workforce that and material resources that was all wood. There's a lot of potential for sustainably managed forests to use wood as a carbon storing material, but you also have to use wood efficiently in order for it to be the best use of the material. So carbon is stored in wood, but carbon is also emitted in manufacturing wood. And so using more wood in one building is not the best solution, even though more carbon would be stored in that building, because you're better off using that more wood and building more buildings. I'm sorry. I'm So you have a meal ticket forever because it sounds like this LCA game is, is quite difficult. There's a lot of nuance involved. It sounds like this EC3 tool has future uses to help identify that exact quandary. Yes. And, and then really, and then interestingly going up then all into the supply chain of forests, and then you start to get to some of, I think, what would probably be the issues that you would be talking about is how does forest management play out in a benefit as a carbon benefit or not? And how do forest products be able to recognize that forest management benefit? One of the really interesting challenges is that products like a two by four tend to be graded just on its strength, not on the carbon benefit of the whole supply chain. Yeah. Speaking of forest management, I know this podcast will air sometime in the winter, which is not fire season. It's Weird to say that we now have fire season, but that's a thing. Mm -hmm. But one of my favorite ideas I heard about forest management was actually the harvesting of wood that is at risk of burning or maybe already dead and basically converting that into biochar and turning that biochar into a solid material that could be carbon that somehow ends up in the built environment. Any reactions to that idea? Uh, I haven't heard that one, but that's interesting. Um, somebody also just recently pointed out that the forest fires end up making that biochar, and then the wood hangs out in the forest for a while. The state of Washington owns a lot of and manages a lot of the forests. And if the state can figure out ways to help manage the forests well and get building wood products out of it, that would be a, a good win-win, right? Can we reduce fires, help our air quality, manage forests and buildings for carbon? That would be great. So good potential. I hadn't heard that one. That sounds uh, pretty interesting, though. Um, we should start wrapping it up. Is there anything else we should cover? We certainly have covered a lot of ground. I guess to put a question your way, Kate, if someone wants to get more involved in the LCA space or start thinking about carbon in buildings, where should they begin? Probably the best place would be to join the Embodied Carbon Network. So the Embodied Carbon Network is uh, supported by the Carbon Leadership Forum, but it's an open access communication community. Now we've got about 300 people from around the world. These would be the embodied carbon nerds. I'll call them us. I'll call us all nerds. Embodied carbon aficionados. And it's a place where people are sharing news and asking questions. So it would also, we also create our own series of webinars around embodied carbon in the built environment. It's a place where people are, um, if you ask a question within 24 hours, you get a bunch of people answering, giving you different answers to the question. That would be the first place I would go. And then the Carbon Leadership Forum does have some resources online. And there's some other, other organizations. Architecture 2030 has a Carbon Smart Material Palette. 
Cool. Yeah, I think you may have just forced our hand and Nori is going to join that network. That sounds like an amazing community. Yeah. And so hopefully maybe some of our listeners will want to join and we'll see you in there as well. Yes. Thanks for being with us, Kate. And then we recently sent out via the Nori newsletter, a podcast survey, and we heard that people very much wanted an outro. Sometimes we end abruptly. So I'm just going to keep talking and then gradually fade out. Outro. <laughs>